Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Brent P. Waters, Emeritus Professor of Christian Social Ethics at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. This is uh, the second time we've had him on the show. This time we're going to talk about his book, Common Callings and Ordinary Virtues. And I'm really excited about this because I think this is one of those, uh, and I'm, I'm excited to hear your motivation for writing it, because um, I think there's a huge disconnect between philosophy, ethics, academia, and the ordinary everyday things. And it's very clear that's your goal to remedy in this book. So tell us a little bit about your motivation for writing it. You know, hopefully I didn't steal too much of your thunder there. Thank you for coming on, by the way. No, it's glad, glad to be back. Um, well, what, what started it was I suddenly began to realize I spent an awful lot of my time as an academic thinking about writing about issues that I had no firsthand experience of and largely in abstract terms. Now, I, I want to first of all preface everything else I'm going to say is I don't think there's anything wrong about thinking about big ideas. But what I realized was I largely ignored where I spent most of my time. I was ignoring where I lived. And I think that particularly for Christian theologians, that's a dangerous thing to do, because I think, I think God's very concerned about the ordinary. Otherwise, we wouldn't have things like incarnation and many of the parables of Jesus and, and things like that. Now, what finally clinched the deal that, in fact, I needed to change, change my, my, my uh, whole apparatus was I was sick for an extended period of time. I spent about a month in the hospital. And I won't go into the details of, of what, all the, uh, what was wrong, but that's when I discovered that, okay, it was the doctors that did a lot for the healing, but they were a little bit, bit like Melchizedek. They kind of floated into the room coming from nowhere and where, where they went, no one knew. It was the nurses um, who were there day in and day out. And they were concerned with very ordinary things like, was I eating? How did I get to the bathroom? How did I get through my physical therapy where I, I had to relearn how to walk, feed myself, dress myself? Very common, but then I realized extraordinarily important things. And... You know, here I was on the mercies and, and good graces of strangers, helping to regain my life. And then I realized a lot of my life was spent doing very ordinary things. I think that's what you do in being a husband and a father. Um, you know, you, you get up in the middle of the night and you run that dreadful errand to the drugstore and you, you, you pick up the cough medicine. You, you know, you, you, you clean up the puke in the hallway. Um, you, you know, you mow the lawn, you, you cut the shrubs, you, you do all these things. And so increasingly, I began to wonder, maybe the second great commandment of loving my neighbor, and there's all sorts of neighbors that we encounter, is we express that love through the ordinary, and not necessarily the extraordinary things that we do. Uh, and that was just a hunch I was kind of playing through and saying, okay, can I make a case for this? 
Um, and, and partly it was also a reaction against, I think, increasingly living in a society where the default position is that everyone needs to be extraordinary. But, but that's really not a very good strategy because if everyone's extraordinary, then no one is. And yeah, the Incredibles line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so and then also it's, you know, again, it's it's a day in and day out. What, what I would call ordinary, the closest sentiment I know of it is is steadfast. You know, mm. you're just there. So, th- so that was the motivation for the book. And and also, I, as I was coming co- toward the end of my career, I wanted to use a book where, write a book in theology where I primarily use novels as the examples. Uh, <laughs> gave me excuse. Yeah, we my, talked uh, about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah gave me excuse, yeah, Mike's yeah, yeah. not a good read novel. <laughs> I love it. Um as we were, uh, as you set out at the very beginning, you kind of um, create a foundation for the book around three major acts of love by God. Can you, why did you make that move? And how do those three acts of love play into the rest of the book? Well, I mean, I wanted to first start off with, you know, that that is the premier Christian virtue. I mean, it's one of the three theological virtues, but the greatest of these is love. So, so why, why is that so important? Well, in the first place, it's, 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 it's just wholly capricious. There's, there's no, I mean, there was no compelling reason why God had to love human beings. It's just, it's a completely gratuitous act. And I think, you know, it's, that's just an extraordinary thing to contemplate. So that, you know, first extraordinary act is that there's something rather than nothing. God chose to create and this. I think it's the best way to describe it is this kind of this overflowing of love among the three persons of the, of the Trinity it kind of spills out and ends up being a creation. Um, second thing is incarnation is that that same God actually becomes a human being. Uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to think about. I don't know of any other religion that can make that claim where the, where the creator becomes one of the created. And then the final thing is resurrection, where you just have this this notion that um, ultimately, you know, death will have its 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 say, but it's not the last word. You know, in, in the end, it is life that that is victorious. And again, I think all those three are grounded in love. It orients us toward love, and how do we begin to fulfill that through the ways that we live our lives? And 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 and, and I think what I want to claim is that those three, we come to know those three extraordinary things through the ordinary because it's sort of like an icon. It, you catch a glimpse of it. So where do you, where have I gained my greatest insights and love? You know, and the common things of being married for 47 years, of, of looking upon people in, 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 in unexpected times and places. So that's, that was really the thing behind it. Now, why I use those themes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you've gone into this a little bit and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but it seems that you've referenced ordinary and extraordinary a couple times. Um, can you expand on that a little bit in terms of how does, uh, what role does the extraordinary play in our day-to-day lives and why do we need the ordinary? Okay. Well, I think I'll start with why we need them is the contrast. I mean, you can't know either one until you compare it to the other. So, that, again, to use those three theological themes, saying, okay, those are really extraordinary. And they're unrepeatable. And right. that's what makes them extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's a notion like, um, okay, uh, 
I know human beings are, are, they can be creative, but that doesn't make them a creator. Okay. So it's, it's really that, so it's, it's a way to know that it's only in knowing the ordinary do you become to really to see how extraordinary and how rare the extraordinary is. And that's why it really is in a sense, it's holy and it's awe inspiring. It's, you know, it, it, it motivates responses like, you know, take off your shoes because you're on holy ground. Well, not all ground is holy. Uh, and if you make everything holy, then what, there is no God then. Because God really is set apart, is, 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 is extraordinary. So that, that was the reason is to say again, is, is I need the contrast of the ordinary to really begin the extraordinary. And I, and I think we, sometimes we start in the wrong spot that we think we know the extraordinary. But we get stuck there and we never look at the ordinary and consequently then our understanding of the extraordinary is, is uh, um, incomplete. Although it will never be totally complete. Right, right. Um, and then uh, you, you take like the, this base of these three acts, these three extraordinary acts of love and you start into uh, the kind of distinction between calling and vocation. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how do you get to calling our calling and our vocations from those three acts of love? And what is the distinction you draw between those two? Yeah, I, I think calling is, is okay. I'll, I'll begin with vocation. I think vocation, and then I'll get back to it. Eventually I'll wander around to an answer. Uh, vocation are those tools that we have to master in order to fulfill our calling. So, and I think the callings, we have multiple callings. I don't think there's just a single calling. And I don't want to limit the calling to simply things like, um, well, I'm called to the priesthood, and that's the only thing that is, is a calling, that everything else is not a calling. No, I think we're called to be uh, married. We're called to be parents. Um, we're called to do a certain kind of job for a while. And, and then in each of those kinds of things, you, to fulfill your calling, you have to learn the vocation. So one of the first things you learn in the vocation of marriage or the calling of marriage, it means that you have to forsake being single. I mean, that's just a very simple lesson, but it's an important lesson. You know, um, married people are not single anymore and they ought not to act as if they were single. Um, to, to be a parent means you're no longer um, childless. And it means you've taken on certain uh, obligations and duties to other people who are now part of your household, you, you welcome to the fellowship of your household and, and you're bound to them. Um, and I think you can go down the line. I mean, if, since I was called to be a professor, it means I couldn't be a banker. And you have, so in some ways, again, what, what you learn in the ordinary is that to say yes to some things, you have to say no to others. And, and there's an inherent limitation in that. And I think at that, and it's another way of saying, stay focused. Stay focused on what your calling is. Stay focused on, on the vocational skills you need to fulfill that calling. So, um, I mean, to go back to the simple uh, answer again is, you know, in fulfilling your calling as a father or a parent, that means probably you shouldn't, um, you know, focus on what it means to be, um, you know, free to take, go any place you want, anytime you want, because to be a parent means you're limited on what you can do. And uh, there's a certain amount of responsibility and risk, you know, to go back to even our last conversation, that if we are going to love well, there is risk involved, there is responsibility involved. Um, and it seems uh, 
from at least the vocational side, you know, you, you said you're going to get to talking about callings. Um, you know, you've touched on that briefly. We, we are embarking on a, a journey uh, uh, towards a certain set of skills, right? It's not that you have to be this perfect parent right from the get-go, but you have committed yourself to get better <laughs> at parenting, right? right like right. Uh, you, you will have rejected your calling. You'll have rejected your vocation if you do not uh, continue to grow in those skills, right? If, you, if your lecture, your very first lecture as a professor was just as good as your last lecture after decades, right? That would be, I would hope that you would find that disappointing, right? Right. I think that's right. I think that's, that's an excellent way to put it because I mean, in, in a strange sort of way by, um, at first it looks as if a vocation is restricting your freedom. And in a, in a, in a simplistic sense it is. But at a deeper level, it is in taking on the obligations of a calling on a vocation, you actually become more free because you become free to do that um, so that you, you become free to be a parent because you're willing to take on the duties and obligations and the limitations of being a parent. Um, and that's in, in a sense, it's, it's in discovering the ordinary that you actually catch a glimpse of the extraordinary dimension of what it means to be a parent and love the strange creature who's now in your household. <laughs> oh gosh, that hits too close to home right now. Um, <laughs> I have two kids right now who are now potty trained and uh, no. yeah, too close right. to home. Um, yes. <laughs> no, the, uh, I love that. Um, uh, do you see um, any way that this dovetails like this idea of vocation and the, this kind of tool set with, um, the idea of practical wisdom, uh, phronesis, you know, uh, this kind of um, capacity we have for training mm -hmm. uh, uh, ourselves to make better judgments and decisions. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't want to write, I mean, I think, I think virtue theory is terribly important. And, but I steadfastly resisted writing using this book as an excuse to write a theory of virtue. Okay. Because there's too many other better people than me that could write better books on, on theory of virtue and, you know, but why compete when you know you're going to lose from the get go. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but I think what I was trying to write is that there's certain kinds of preliminary things that, that one needs to do in order to be better skilled at the, in the school of virtue. So that prior to phrenesis, I think, you know, think learning things like, um, just the, the sheer need for repetition, the sheer need for um, uh, a, a capacity for doing over and over again the same thing is actually a good, if you will, preschool to the school of virtue. Um, so that, for example, I think manners is terribly important because that you know predisposes you to treat people with a certain degree of respect uh, that, that's necessary for, for a virtue, uh, does, such as justice. Uh, so it's it's a way of saying, okay, again, where the ordinary is helpful is that it 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 prepares you to do other things that you may be called to do later in life that otherwise you wouldn't have the capacity to carry it through. Um, I'm mean, something like courage. I mean, I mean, we we may laugh and say, you know, uh, children don't uh, uh, build the capacity for courage. Well, of course they do. I mean, what what parent isn't courageous, or you'd never undertake take the enterprise. 
And as you were saying earlier, it doesn't mean day one, you're the best parent in the world, but you slowly begin to realize I can do this and I can begin to you know, develop certain habits, certain dispositions, and I want to instill those in my children as well. So, you know, it's, it's important to get up every morning and make the bed. It does, it does you know, kind of make a, a predisposition to how you're going to treat the day. My wife makes our bed, so now I feel bad. But, um... Uh, <laughs> well, mine does too, but you can get... Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a good example, though. I understand what you're saying. Um, yeah, just to touch back on what you were talking about, um, there's a... In a, in a superficial sense, we lose freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, what, would you say almost that we, we lose the capacity to choose other callings, obviously, like, but we, what we lose, like that, we lose that kind of agency, but we gain a different kind of agency that comes with more responsibility and more power. Would that yeah. be a fair way to talk about it? I think it is a fair way to talk about it. In some ways, I mean, it's, it's perhaps a bit too simplistic to say, but I think you're on the right track of saying you're exchanging um, breadth for depth. And it would be problematic to stay at uh, to stay in the shallow end. Well, I think it is. I think it's easier. It's less risky. I mean, because I mean, this, this I mean to go back to the example of marriage. I mean, it's a there's a big difference between you know after a few dates calling it quits and uh, getting a divorce. I mean, it's it's because you've made certain kinds of commitments and certain kinds of of, of obligations, and again, there's there's different kinds of, of risks involved in that. So it's you know, and let's face it, I mean, a good marriage is is a deeper relationship than uh, the second date. Hopefully, hopefully, um, the <laughs> the uh, yeah, you've mentioned a little bit about the ordinary and repetition, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, so you see, it, it, even as you were just talking there, um, I'm reminded of some of my own reading in Kierkegaard, how like uh, just making the commitment itself shapes us and following through on that commitment and that that's an important part of this. Yes, I think it's, I think that's a great, a, a, a very excellent way to put it is in a sense, you, you take the leap first. Yeah. And then you learn where you've landed. <laughs> and, I mean, that's, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I mean, and then you have to learn the, the skills of, of navigating this new terrain that you've leaped into, not knowing in advance where you might land. So, um, you know, and, and again, I think that's what's why it's, at least I find Kierkegaard simultaneously very interesting and frustrating to read. Because, you know, I think philosophers are inherently kind of conservative. You want the answers before you make a commitment. And, and Kierkegaard is not going to offer you that. I mean, it's, it's easy uh, Lutheran to the core. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'd never thought of that connection. But yeah, that makes total sense. I don't know why I've missed that. The, um, as we talk about, uh, my wife is very patient with me. Uh, there's a book by Kierkegaard called The Concept of Anxiety, and anxiety there is translated um, probably poorly. Today it has more this idea of like uh, chronic uh, kind of numbness. I don't know the exact way to describe that. Whereas for him, what he was describing is the kind of a wall of emotion and not understanding that comes before a new stage of life. 
Uh, and so when I went to go propose to my wife, she knew it was coming. Um, that's a whole story in itself. But as we were walking, I was talking to her about how it was so strange to me because I knew we were embarking on a new stage of life. And I could not even begin to imagine what it was going to be like because I'd never had the been responsible for another person before in that like completely and totally right um and and put myself together with that person and I knew that just by creating that commitment I was going to be I was going to be fundamentally shaped and so uh I, that's I, you know as you talk about parenting was the same way in some ways I think parenting was even more so because I know even with my wife I never had to worry like I was like she can survive without me um I'll never forget my first child putting them, you know, they handed us the baby, they gave us a pamphlet and a couple diapers and they were like, okay. And I was like, but if I, if I mess up, the baby dies, you know, (laughs) (laughs) know? and it was just, it was overwhelming. All of a sudden, like, it was like I'd passed through this wall and there was a whole new world where I had to just completely, uh, remake myself. Um, and that's, I think, what, but what's, if that description to me seems extraordinary, but really when you talk about marriage and parenting, these are very ordinary things. Well, they are. And, and what's, what has struck me about so many of the biographies is you think of these people that you read about who, who we lift up and do extraordinary things is, is that how routine it is for them because they've mastered certain kinds of practices, certain kinds of things of what it means for them to be in the position. I mean, particularly I'm thinking of when you read the accounts of generals in wars, where you know so much is riding on their shoulders, you know, an Eisenhower or a Grant or, or, or whatever. And um, they just go about it as if, you know, you and I are getting up and going to work because it it is their calling and vocation in a sense. And they've done, it's not as if they they showed up the first day and they were made a general. They had to demonstrate certain kinds of things and and they had to learn certain kinds of common, ordinary skills. I mean, I think one of the first things a, a good general learns is the value that basically a shovel may be more valuable than a rifle because you, you've got to, you know, you got to dig the trench. And I think it's the same thing you were mentioning earlier as a professor. You know, you, you begin to realize, well, actually, it's pretty humbling to realize that no one's going to remember my lectures. So, so it's, it's what do I really have to master to be the, the, the good professor? And increasingly, the older I got, I thought, you know, you've got to learn how to listen. Uh, rather than do all the talking. Or you'll never figure out what is it that the students really striving to to accomplish and what is it that you know uh, now you may have to teach them as saying you're listening for the wrong things i mean and 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 that's what you have to hear in their voices tell the student well the reason you're not getting it is because you're not looking in the right place you're not i mean you have to teach students how to read in a sense um particularly difficult kinds of texts but you but you tell them you know the first thing i used to tell my students is make sure you get the first sentence down if you if because everything else is going to be delivery on that first sentence. Um, so it's, those are things is, is, again, it's the very ordinary part of it. I mean, you know, when, when you, when you think of how rudimentary it is to learn how to read, and yet if you don't do those, you know, those routine skills at the beginning, 
you know, I think there's, it's one of the reasons phonics works is because of that repetition. You know, we, we, we learn how to read through the basics. And I think life is largely learning how to read. You learn how to read life, you learn how to read others. And, and again, if you don't have that skill base, and that doesn't mean you can't constantly improve on the skill base, but it's, it's pretty ordinary stuff that helps us to do sometimes extraordinary things for others and, and to receive extraordinary gifts of others. But by the way, as, 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 did you read Kierkegaard in Danish or English? Oh, English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, had a, I had a Danish friend who told me actually Kierkegaard reads better in English than Danish, but so oh. <laughs> I don't know if <laughs> well, that's we be- true or not. Yeah, we can be grateful to the the Hongs. I have the all those academic, like the black, and they always have like some pastel color. Um, yeah, they they're very readable, which I'm grateful for. Um, I've heard the same thing uh, about a couple different philosophers, uh, like Kant, especially. I've heard that. I I don't know if that's an urban myth. That's just something that people say to make themselves feel better, you know? Because, <laughs> anyways, we don't have to get into uh, how difficult Kant is to read. I think uh, our audience is probably familiar with that, but. Um, uh, so moving from the calling and vocation uh, side of things, you then talk about the distinction, or sorry, the definitions of virtues and vices. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, I could see how this could have turned into a virtue theory book. Uh, so this is your chance to maybe expand on that. But Yeah, well, uh, well I think it's just, I, th- I think, you know, virtues for a long time had a bad rap because we just confined it to to, to sexual conduct. You know, a person was either virtuous or, or they weren't, but it's actually what the virtues are is really a way to ask, ask and answer the question. What makes an excellent human being? An excellent human being is, is someone who's mastered certain kinds of virtues and been formed and shaped by them. Um, and again, you know, I, I don't want to get into the complexities of, you know, did, did Aristotle or Plato get it right? And, and, and later on, you know, the other, other theories, but I think it's, it's, the insight is 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 correct, and now the other side of virtue, of course, is vice. And if you if you're formed and shaped by the vices, then you become a vicious person. And viciousness doesn't necessarily mean that you're you know an ev- a wicked person. It means that basically you're shaped by sloth, or you're you're safe, you're, you're shaped by cowardice, or whatever. Um, and and I think it's important to read, to begin to to look at, say that you know, it, in may in many ways, vice is much more interesting and it's much easier, but it's also ultimately malformative. Um, I mean, if if the vices really weren't pleasant, they wouldn't be temptations, and that's what makes it so pernicious because it's just so much easier. I mean, I mean, who doesn't want to be a glutton? Yeah, we we've added a few. Uh, yeah, right. Um, actually, to kind of uh, an example, I immediately thought of is we are currently, you know, a lot of younger children. We've added a couple new members to the household, and we're we've been talking a lot about lying. And one of the things, uh, as I've been thinking about how to explain, because a lot of times they'll lie to not get in trouble for something. And how do you explain? <laughs> it's like, well, you're still going to get in trouble. Even if you tell the truth, right? Right. Um, but getting them to see that there are um, there is small consequences for telling the truth and small gains from lying now, but the long term consequences and the long term gains are flip flopped, 
right? That like once you start lying, it it starts to malform your character and you will find yourself diverging, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even, uh, and this as a kid, I did not understand this at all. Um, it didn't make sense to me. And now as an adult, I've seen people do this. It's, the people who lie uh, habitually, uh, the most dangerous part about it is they start to lie to themselves. And they start ha- having a hard time distinguishing between uh, fact and reality, or between reality and unreality, between fact and fiction. Yeah, and I, and I think that that, you know, we see a lot of it these days. Um, because, um, how can I put this? I think we've, we've stumbled into a bad trap of saying truth no longer matters. All that matters is the narrative. And, um, you know, that's a dangerous place to go because that simply means in a credulous age, all you have to say is something that is credible. And that seems to be easier and easier to say these days, you know, so. Um, so well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, I, to go along with that, I think it, it's uh, that whole credibility is that you can always si- find, like in, in the past, um, you only had access to a certain group of people. And so you could only get away with saying so much before some people would be like, no, you can't. That's not true. Right. Like um, and sometimes uh, everyone around you was wrong. Right. Like that did happen. But generally speaking, like if you're talking to 100 people and <laughs> um, yeah, like they're all saying you're wrong, you might want to check yourself. But the um, but what we have now is you you now talk to millions of people mm-hmm. and you have you have uh, a service that helps find people just like you. So mm-hmm. you you can curate people who will uh, agree with what you're saying, regardless of its truth or not. So we can always find someone to agree with us. Yeah, and I think, I think that's right. And then the next step beyond that is eventually, before you know it, you slipped into a kind of easy nihilism where nothing much of anything matters anymore. So, so I mean, I mean, if, if the definition is is that if there is nothing noble to will, it is better to will nothing at all. Then you begin to realize, you know, the vices are the preparation ground for that. You know, because I mean, something like sloth is not just laziness. It's 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 called the demon at noonday, um, where you just lose any of the ability to affirm anything at all. Yeah. Uh, where did I, I mean, uh, forgive me, like it may be possible that you came up with that, but that sounds like you're quoting something. Whereas the demon at noonday uh, yeah, that's, that, and that it, idea. Yeah, that, it comes out of the monastery. Hmm. It goes back a long way in, in, in the Christian tradition. That's how sloth was 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 understood to be. Um, and it's, uh, you know, Goodness, when you're in the monastery, you worry about a lot of things. And one of the things they worried about was was sloth, and it wasn't, and it, and it wasn't like I said, it, it, a, sign, a, a kind of simplistic sign of it is a kind of laziness. But it's it's more of this notion of saying there's absolutely nothing which is worthwhile to affirm, and that may be, in fact, you know, the sin against the Holy Spirit, because basically what you're saying is 
you you can't even affirm God is good. I have never heard sloth described like that. I always just thought of it as laziness. So one, thank you. Um, and what I, I find really interesting about that is the worst parts of uh, capitalism, people who are basically just caught up in getting money with no real desire to affirm life, they can be working 80 to 100 hours a week and still be considered slothful. Am I understanding that correctly? That's, that's that be exactly right. That's exactly right. That's why, interestingly enough, the, the antidote oh. sloth is playfulness. <laughs> um, and, and the reason being is that play draws you out of yourself. Because sloth is really completely self, self-fixated. It's, it's another way to put it is it's, it's the ground of narcissism because you've judged the whole world in terms of, of your own state of being. And if, if your own state of being is wanting, then the whole world must be terrible. Uh, so it's, it's really, a, it's a very complex. I mean, of all the vices, I think it's in some ways more dangerous even than pride. That definitely adds a whole new dimension of that. I'm gonna have to like, I'm gonna have to sit with that one for a while. Um, yeah, there's some good books out there too. I mean, it's, I mean, I've already I've often worried about authors that spend all their time thinking about sloth. I mean, it's just. <laughs> uh, wait, do you have any off the top of your head? I know that puts you on the spot, but. I don't because I'm, I'm old enough to claim I can't remember anything, but if you email me, I'll, I'll send, I can look it up okay. and send it to you. So. Um, uh, and you mentioned, I have this written down to ask about um, because I'm, I love this idea, uh, and I, you know, it sounds like you're referencing, you know, Kant and, uh, you know, Gadamer talks about this quite a bit. Um, why, why is play necessary for the moral life? You make that claim uh, partway through your book. Yeah, well, and let, let me step back for a minute too, because there was a point that I think is also important. The, the, the other reason why, why it's important to hang on to truth is otherwise you you slip into the the evil of fantasy now i'm not saying that all fantasies are bad but i think iris murdoch was correct when she says that one of the great enemies of moral um excellence is fantasy because it, it does not allow you to engage the world as it is i mean you you begin to simply create substitute worlds which in fact do not exist in fact i think that's the i mean hannah Arendt said that's one of the great um, temptations of the intellectual too. If you don't like the world you're living in, you can invent one in your head that's better, and that's where you end up spending your your time. And that's it's very dangerous, I think, particularly if you're going to do something like uh, like a theologian who proclaims this is how you should be living your life. So that's a digression. I think it's an important one to keep in mind that that basically you don't want to live in a world of fantasy. You do want to live in the world that God has created you to be part of, and not necessarily to create that alternative. Uh, now, you want to create a world that God wants as an alternative. But that's, again, responding to a calling and a vocation, which I think then is, is grounded in realism and not fantasy. Uh, I, I want to make sure I understand you. When you talk about uh, the way the world should be, um, is it almost like this idea that uh, the theologian, instead of dealing with the world as it is, which requires work, uh, just is basically writing stories as theology or theology as story, you know, kind of like, as like, um, as a, like a fantastic, like this second reality. And so it's almost like he lives in this world that should be, and it isn't. 
It can be. It can be, yeah. Um, or it's, for example, in some of the more progressive Protestant circles that I spent a good part of my career in, you kind of wonder whatever became a sin. And one of the things you begin to notice in the liturgy, we don't do the prayers confession anymore because we don't really believe we've done anything requiring that we confess. And I think it's a grave distortion of the Christian gospel is because central to it is the acknowledgement that, you know, we are sinners. Now, that, that doesn't mean you're irredeemable. In fact, to the contrary, we get back to the incarnation, and this is what this is all about. So it's, it's, it's in that fantasy of living as if you're, you're sin-free that gets you into all sorts of mischief, when in fact, and, and also living in the fantasy that you're nothing but a sinner. Either one of those two extremes, I think, will get you into serious kinds of, of, of difficulty. It's really the realism of saying that you're a redeemed sinner. Or at least you have the possibility of living a redeemed, being a redeemed sinner. Yeah, sin abounds, grace abounds more. And right. so it's, it's problematic to be like, there is no sin or sin abounds more, right? Right, right. Now, yeah. now that doesn't give you a license to go sin so that grace may abound all the more. But, but. <laughs> God forbid, right? Yes, right, right. <laughs> Um, yes. Uh, but now I forget, I forgot yeah. the question you really asked me. So if you can remind me. No, that, I, I loved that. I know that was a great, um, that was a great, um, oh, rabbit trail sounds derogatory. I liked taking that path. So I'm glad to come back. Um, the, uh, what, it, why is play necessary hmm. for the moral life? That that's fascinating to me. Well, good, you know, if you're going to play well, you got to know the rules. You can't play without rules. And when you know the rules, then you know what's expected of you and how to perform and there's ways to judge. Well, isn't that what the excellent life is about, is, is, is forming those rules, living by those rules. And, you know, playing with an attitude that maybe, maybe winning isn't everything. Maybe it is just simply for love of the game that we play. Um, so that, which raises some very fascinating questions about professional athletics. I mean, is, is athletics play? I mean, at that level? Or is that spectacle? Is it entertainment? What, what exactly is it? But simply to, to be involved. And, and, when, and when you think of good play, there's all sorts of rituals that go with it, too. And, and again, it's that repetition and, and to learn how to play. I mean, there's nothing more boring than practice when you're playing a sport. But if, but if you don't go through the rituals of practice and the repetition of it, you can't play well. But in that playfulness, I think, is there's also a sort of attitude of um, uh, being in cooperation, too. You can't play a game if you don't have cooperation. So whether it's a team sport or not, both sides have to cooperate that they're going to abide by the rules or you really can't play the game. Um, I think it was interesting, too. I mean, years ago, back before the first uh, dot-com bubble burst, I was talking to some of the people who used to be involved in that, and, and I used to think it was just hard number crunching everything else. That's not how they started businesses. It was very, very, very interesting. He said, well, yeah, you, you gather together some people, you put out the plan, and then you look around the table and you ask one question, who wants to play? And there was that kind of, you know, on, and in some ways I think playfulness is, is maybe rooted with entrepreneurial kinds of endeavors. Because it's, um, 
there's also, I think, a sense that underlying all this is is you have to have, I mean, I think it's distressing we live in an increasingly humorless world. And it's not just the cancel culture that I have in mind, but also the, the inability to laugh at ourselves, to laugh at our own mistakes, to, to learn from them. And in that, that kind of humorous attitude, I think, is, is, is directly proportional to the playfulness. So, again, even, even for children now, I think that playfulness has taken on a, a much more serious aspect than when, when I was young. I mean, when I was young, basically, you know, people played multiple sports. They, they kind of played at it, if you will. And now I know, you know, talking to parents where, you know, they take their their sons to uh, 40 baseball clinics a year so they can get the scholarship at the Division one one school. And it's a much more serious. I mean, it's, it's almost like a business. Yeah. Um, but but the, oh, it's very true. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. But the insight I, I gained was from his, uh, Heinziger, who is a, a Dutch philosopher who wrote on this, was saying, look, the difference is, is that. Uh, Seriousness cannot uh, include playfulness, but playfulness can include seriousness because you can you can play seriously and yet still maintain a different kind 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 of attitude. So yeah, so I think so I think yeah. I mean, when when I look at really the moral exemplars, uh, it's as I've encountered them, it's it's they have had that kind of playful attitude um, where you know it's it's not that life itself is play, but there's a playful dimension of life. And if you cut yourself out from that, I don't, I don't think your, your life is as rich as it could be. I, I'm definitely going to steal that phrase uh, for our next family game night, because my family uh, may not always be serious, but when we play, we play seriously. Uh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So on game night, do you begin, you know, game on? <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very competitive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um yeah, it, it, you actually you you mentioned it in there. Um, ritual in the ordering of time and place that chapter, and then you add this sub um, this uh, tag on belonging, and you've referenced this you know with the repetition and all that. But can you talk a little bit about the role of ritual? Um, I think it has a very certain connotation in American life. That to be quite honest, in the rest of the world people just kind of think of his good manners, you know, you've, you've yeah. referenced that as well, yeah. but. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the more problematic aspects of, of contemporary life is we don't belong anywhere and we don't necessarily belong with people with a particular you know, group of people. So we're, we're kind of cast adrift. Uh, we're nomadic imagine, imaginatively and, and, and physically. And I think, you know, that's that's a problem over the long run is that you you belong with particular you belong in particular places and you belong with particular people. Now, I'm a hypocrite for saying this because I've moved around a lot and I'm uprooted and, and things like that. But I, but even there now, as, as I get older, I begin to feel like uh, I'm homesick. Because I'm not grounded anywhere. Um, and. That's where I was trying to write in, in that book about, um, you know, using Ann Tyler of all authors. Is, is she says some wonderful things about living in a house, in a home, and how that becomes a kind of focal point for drawing in, you know, people together uh, over generations and they cut across the generations. I mean, it's going back to, you know, um, that wonderful philosopher Albert Borgman 
you know, who, who recently died and, you know, that's a great loss, but he writes about focal things and practices and about how, you know, a family meal is that kind of thing that draws the family together. And you're not just there to, to consume food. You're there to, to talk to them and the rituals of conversation of hospitality and the things that go into this. And that's what I was trying to get along is that, you know, we, we find our belonging in interactions with other people and with sharing with them narratives over time. So that, for example, one of the cases that I've tried to make that, you know, why, why adoptive parents are not second rate parents, but every as much as, as birth parents is because children have to find their belonging with parents and maybe the belonging, the parents that they belong with may not be their birth parents for a whole variety of circumstances. So they belong with a different set of persons or our parents, or you belong with your spouse as a married person. Um, so, you know, and, and even there, I think that that's properly understood. That's where I think I can draw a, a difference between say the, the Patriot and the nationalist is, is the Patriot knows that he or she belongs to certain kind of people, not of their choosing. I mean, goodness sakes, um, you know, you belong to a lot of people that are very, very quite irritating. But but there, it's where you find your belonging there, and that doesn't necessarily claiming a, a superiority of, of other forms of belonging. But again, what you're talking about that that you learn the rudiments of, of manners and learn the rudiments of how we treat one another, because well, we belong to each other, we belong with each other. Uh, so again, that's what I was trying to draw draw out in that. Uh, yeah, even um, it, it was something that I had seen kind of the dissolution of with um, my age group, but with the real advent of the internet, because I was kind of old enough that like I was on the cusp, but I, I didn't, I wasn't around during uh, the real, like I wasn't dating during the, the revolution of the internet, right? right it was right. just all starting to change. Um, and the, one of the things is how culture just gives like very clear guidelines to protect us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so when you're talking about manners and the way that um, people spend so much time discussing and trying to figure out and there's like all this back and forth between different groups about what is the appropriate way to date now. Right. Um, my my brother's like spending time on dating apps and he's like, well, this is what people say. He's like surfing like social sites trying to find out what, how, how am I supposed to interact here? Because it's not something that's. Like it, it, we're literally forming it as we go. Is that is that a good example of what you're talking about? Yeah, and I think. Well, and I, think I mean, that'd be a example of what of the, the bad things that are happening, right? No, I think I think that's right because it's just simply exhausting to having to reinvent yourself every day and not having the guidelines of what does it mean to be X, Y, and Z. So the, the example I often use with people is that. Um, Okay, yeah, step back from that for a minute. It also perplexed me why when I was part of a, a, a predominantly Protestant progressive faculty, almost all of my colleagues came from very traditional, even fundamentalist backgrounds, and they were still rebelling. Okay. Whereas I grew up in Southern California, and most of my life has been a blessed rage for order because I found having limitless choice is actually very exhausting. 
and it really doesn't give you any kind of guidelines. So you're right. There used to be a kind of, you know, it, it, it was imperfect. It was informal. But yes, there was a kind of rules of dating that everyone recognized. And that's all out the window now. In fact, you know, when my daughter was growing up, I don't think she really dated. They kind of went out in a herd. And, uh, you know, some... <laughs> Sorry, I was, not, I was not ready for that. <laughs> so, well, and some of them hooked up and, you know, and, 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 and things like that. But it was just very different to me. I could really didn't understand the, the attraction of it because, I mean, again, it goes back to that playfulness because there was the game of dating and you had to learn how to play it well. I mean, and it wasn't that you were being hypocritical or anything else. There were just certain rules. And, you know, you knew when you had tran transgressed those rules and it didn't really help you. Because it, it presupposed that dating would lead to courting and courting would lead to marriage and things, things like that. And again, you know, if today I use the word courting among young people and they have no idea what I'm talking about. They think it has something to do with the courtroom or something. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I was, I've been talking to other parents now and they're talking like some of them have teenagers and um, the, the idea of like there, we have as we globalize, we have more cultures mishmashing together. And so um, you have parents uh, with different sets of rules with two kids who are wanting to wanting to date even. And it's like one family thinks you should ask the dad and one doesn't think you should ask the dad. And how do you navigate that? How do you negotiate that? And it's, um, yeah, I mean, and obviously, and then like, it's like, and what age does that stop, right? You know, do you have to ask the father if like, you have, you have a 30-year-old daughter, like these like... <laughs> I, and they're just like, they're very ordinary things, but they're also very important things, right? Um, yeah, they are. And, 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 you're, and you're right. We, we went through the change fairly rapidly and really didn't even take time to pause and catch our breath. And I mean, I, as I think back now, I could even see it in my own family. So I was, I was about 10 and 12 years behind my brother and sister. And it was almost like two different families because I can... I can remember my brother one time being 10 minutes late when he should have been home and he was grounded for 10 days. <laughs> and it was one minute per day. A day a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, fast forward, I'm around 17. He comes back to visit. I'm on my way out. My mother says, are you going to be home late? And I said, probably. And she says, well, I'll lock the door and turn off the light when you get home. Well, you know, he goes, you know, basically berserk, saying what you know, what gives here, <laughs> and it's just you know times had changed, rules had changed. So, but it wasn't necessarily. I think it was probably okay. Again, this is why you also have to be to be able to amend certain kinds of practices. I mean, I think I think my parents were too tough on my older brother and sister, and they probably weren't tough enough on me. And we're, we're a little bit of the baby of the family. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So where do you find this and how do you negotiate that? And I think, again, it comes back to those, you know, it's, living's an art, it's not a science, not a technology. And, and again, going back to your, your previous comment, you just learn over time. And, and yeah. How to make the adjustments. Um, and you end, and uh, it's, it involves a good part of the book. You go through the different relationships and activities. I, I notice that in relationships, you start with neighbors. Yeah. Um, I, I think I know the answer to this, but why start with neighbors there uh, as the first and most important relationship? 
because you, I mean, it's it's the most ubiquitous form of of other persons that you run into. I mean, I mean, Bart does a masterful job with that. There are neighbors near and far. There are neighbors who are intimate, neighbors who are strangers, um, and you know you have to learn how to treat different kinds of neighbors in ways that are appropriate. So you don't treat a stranger as if they're an intimate, and you don't treat you know treat an intimate uh, as if they're a stranger. And again, it's just you know the world is full of neighbors, and I think it's you know it's really we do ourselves a disservice if we think neighbors are simply those who live in close proximity, because particularly in the kind of technology you and I have to learn to, to navigate. Well, there are global neighbors, and we interact with them every day on the internet. They're just invisible. Yeah, um, and then I noticed so. You have neighbors, friends, spouses, parents and children together, strangers and citizens. Um, is there a particular reason that you didn't uh, have family together, that you separated spouses, parents and children, and you didn't include brothers and sisters? Uh, I wish I could say there was a good reason. Um, I mean, I made the separation between marriage and family because there are quite a few marriages these days who do not have children. And I think to try to say, you know, that um, a household based on solely a married couple is the same as a household with 12 children. is No, they're not. They're, they're two different kinds of, of things. I, I, yeah, I concentrated on the relationship between parents and, and, and children. Um, in retrospect, I probably should have said something of the of, 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 of among siblings. Yeah, because I mean, I once said in class, and it got me into all sorts of trouble, that, you know, one of the nice things about having siblings is we learn to, to love people we don't like. Well, that was just too much autobiography, but it also <laughs> opened up, you know, too many, too many other things. But, um, but yeah, because I think, I think it is. It's, uh, you you got to pay attention to siblings because they also are ways that you're grounded in the world, ways that you find your belonging. And in retrospect, I should have said something about it. Didn't. I, that was not. <laughs> I, I thought you had a reason. I apologize. I was no, not looking not for it. that. Like, <laughs> no, it's just um, an oversight in my part. Um, as we look at uh, activities, uh, you know, I want to be con uh, conscious of your time here. The uh, you know, you talk about work, uh, housework, and homework, mm -hmm. um, and manners and appearance. Uh, can you speak a little bit to housework and homework and what the distinction is between those two? Yeah, well, I think what I tried to say is that, you know, it's a little bit borrowing without giving credit to Hannah Arendt's difference between work and labor, where work is something that we do with our imagination and labor is just simply a response to, to natural necessity, physical necessity. I would, I'd say housework is those things that basically you just got to do, like, you, you know, you, you got to clean the dishes, you got to cook the meals, you got to clean the carpets. It's just, it's just maintaining the physical prop, you know, uh, place of where you live. It's, 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 it's housework. It's keeping the house in good repair. But if you don't do that, you're not, you can't do your homework properly. And homework is building upon living together in a house and putting that, that building a home so that the two are not synonymous terms. Um, I think people can live in houses and not necessarily have a home. And with certain refugees, they can have a home and not necessarily have a house. So it's, but I think the two are related and it should be, and that's why I use that again, the Ann Tyler novel of, of seeing the intimate relationship between a family over multiple generations in, 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 in a house and what went into that. And um, 
it just it just really struck me as that you know um i think people tend to thrive when when houses are well maintained and they're not living in, in squalor or something like that i think you know just human beings are kind of geared that way they want to live in in, in good environments where there's three meals a day and, and things like that and that's again it's a discipline it's reputation and it's certainly not interesting i mean i i tried to go out of my way i've never found a household chore that i've liked i mean <laughs> so, so but it's you, you just got to do them. Uh, so uh, just to make sure i'm tracking with you you're you, you see a very similar distinction to uh, Hannah Arendt's um, labor and work. Mm-hmm. That work is what we use our imagination for. And you see homework as that kind of what when we use our imagination. It's that more creative side to, to build. Yeah, homework is game night. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, housework is making the beds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel that felt a little pointed, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Actually, it's fair. I mean, it's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so for me, I love to cook. So I spend uh, a lot of time being creative with cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, laundry does not, you know, and I don't know how you'd get creative about laundry, but that's that's definitely housework, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, you mentioned about the cooking, and I think cooking is the bridge between housework and homework. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of both. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Dr. Waters, one, let me just say, I, I've really enjoyed our time and it's really, um, I, I love the, the blend here of the philosophical and the everyday, because I feel like, um, big questions are only worth it if they can, if we can meet them. Right. And so this has been, I've really appreciated, um, you sharing your wisdom today. Uh, for our audience, uh, if you could give one takeaway, uh, not not asking for a summary. I don't think that's fair. But uh, just a takeaway for uh, this upcoming week as they listen. What would you give them? Um, pay attention to the little things um, because they're so easily ignored. And if you ignored them, you might actually miss something important because uh, it's often in the little things that redirects our attention to what is most important in our lives. Um, and, uh, or as I sometimes told my students, don't be afraid to do little things. They, they count. So, um, yeah. And I think it's counterintuitive. Um, again, with the, with the, you know, you mentioned later, you know, the technology, we, we think things have to be bigger than life, but actually, you know, life has to be just the right size. Um, there, there is a Goldilocks wisdom after all that, you know, you're not, um, and um, so that that would be the takeaway. And and then the other takeaway is re- read novels. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and uh, it, you know, uh, after a, a long and fruitful academic career, um, find a book that can justify reading novels on sabbatical. Yeah, that's yeah. Um... <laughs> no, that's, that's that's the biggest trick at all because then you know, and then you can use your book allowance to buy them. And <laughs> I love it. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Waters. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.